This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Today is 11-11, November 11th, but 11-11, an auspicious number. Some numerology fans believe it to be a number that represents change, coincidence, moments of chance, points in time that define an ending and a beginning. So today on News & Culture, we look backwards, airing three stories from deep within our archives, but also forwards, airing a new story, all centered on these ideas of ending and beginning, days in the life with their requisite comings and goings, junction points, and quotidian life, all through the freeform lens here at News & Culture. First up, from the archives, Elizabeth Shway speaks to an emergency medical technician, or EMT, about a day in the life. Next, Henry Moses and Luke Carroll bring us to a junction point in the day, quite literally, in the rush hour in the evening at Princeton Junction Station on New Jersey Transit, speaking to people at a point of change in their commute, in their day, and maybe even in their lives. Next, from our archives, Hope Perry learns more about the process behind the circulation desk at Princeton University's Firestone Library, a day in the life of a book. Finally, we return to the archives for an interview between Anna Hiltner and a farmer who believes her work is at an important junction between agriculture and the transcendent world. The word to remember, biodynamics. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio. First up, from the archives, Elizabeth Shway speaks to an emergency medical technician, or EMT, about a day in the life. Today, I talked with a full-time emergency medical technician, or EMT for short. They're usually in ambulances responding to 911 calls about heart attacks or alongside police in emergency situations like car accidents. Kristen Orlandi is a full-time EMT at Princeton First Aid and Rescue Squad. She's been an EMT for 13 years. I got started in a volunteer agency after my mom and my sister were both EMTs. Um, figured it was something that I would really enjoy to do and tried it out and loved it. She works four days a week for 10 hours, from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, when I first come in, I'll handle billings. Um, we have a chore that we have to get done every day. These chores involve making sure that the office, bathrooms, and bunk rooms are clean and floors are swept. There are no janitors, so EMTs take care of the building themselves. We do our rig checks in the morning, make sure that all of our supplies are not expired, that they're in working order. Rigs are what they call ambulances, so every morning Kristen is assigned an ambulance and makes sure that it's clean and all the equipment is ready for the day. So we have three trucks here. Um, well, the third truck is the truck that I'm in today. Um, so when I would come into work, it would be, I would come in and I would make sure that the fuel level was good in the truck, um, that everything was working. I would then come in and make sure that my stretchers um, you know, it's put together with, with sheets and blankets appropriate to the weather. Um, we would make sure that we have all of our equipment, that our med box is with all the appropriate medications that we carry. This is our Lucas, our CPR machine. Why do you call it the Lucas? It's just the name of the, that the maker came up with. So this machine does CPR for us. So you would hit the power button and you hear it, you would lower the plunger onto the patient's chest. Then you would hit 
Um, so we make sure that this is operational. We make sure that it's charged. That's the end of Kristen's daily routine part of her job. For the rest of the day, she handles emergency calls, but no call is the same. Most of them are medical calls for heart attacks or allergic reactions, and others are trauma calls, like for car accidents or falls from heights. Kristen gets two to eight calls in a day. There's not one specific call that we know we're going to go for every day or like, you know, one type of call where we know is actually going to happen. Um, you know, it could be we can get dispatched to something and we get there, it can be something completely different. Um, so it really is not anything daily or predictable, I guess to say. I can go to, you know, five fall victims in a day and each one is going to be something different. Um, you know, how they fell, why they fell, um, what they landed on, it's all going to be different and it's all going to be a different problem solving to get them to something else. So I don't want to say that you ever get numb to it. It especially wasn't easy when she first started as an EMT at age 17. She was nervous all the time. The scariest was probably my first cardiac arrest where CPR was given. Um, it's just something that you train for and you know how to do, but doing it on a human versus a mannequin is um, a totally different um, feeling. I uh, was 17. Almost your first year of being. Yeah. Um, it was um, nerve-wracking, you know, because there's family in the room and everything like that. Um, but you kind of know that you have to get your job done. Um, but you have to know that the, the family is also a concern. People often told Kristen, don't bring your work home. But that's easier said than done. There were some calls where she went home and she was still upset over them. There was one in particular that made her question if she wanted to continue doing this. I had a pretty traumatic call a while back um, at another agency many years ago where I did take a step back and I went to college and decided in college that it was not for me. It was a cardiac arrest of a 43-year-old woman who had two children who I happened to teach swim lessons to. And that's when I, you know, figured that, you know, I couldn't save her. Um, and that's when I started to step back and rethink. I think it was just that I knew the person, um, which was extremely hard when you know somebody and you um, perform CPR and you, you know, you, you attempt to save their life and you can't. Um, you know, I had, new, I had other, EM, you know, cardiac arrest calls prior to that, but I didn't know them. Um, so it didn't hit home as hard as some of these other, you know, this one did. After that traumatic call, Kristen went to college and took a break from EMT for a few months. But after her second semester, she started volunteering on weekends again. After college, Kristen worked as a swim instructor in after-school programs and in a doctor office. But it was the same thing every day. And in each of these jobs, she found herself quickly getting bored and didn't enjoy it anymore. I think when, when your job to you gets boring, that's when you start to get those midlife crisis. And I think in a job of mine, I really haven't gotten bored. And I don't think I ever really get will, you know, will get bored. And I just realized that, you know, it was something that I was meant to do, something I was born to do. And I came back and here I am. Our job's a lot of unexpected. Um, not one day is the same as the day before which is great because I'm not good with the same routine every day, which is why I got in this profession. Um, so our job is, it's really, de you know, we never know when the, when the tones are going to go off or when we're going to get a call. So we're just always constantly prepared for it. What was great about being an EMT was that it was such a dynamic job, which was perfect for Kristen because she was unhappy with the routine lifestyle in her previous jobs. Being an EMT involved different problem-solving and outside-of-the-box thinking all the time, since no call is the same. Um, it would be like, you know, I come in at 9, we check my truck, I do the billing, um, you know, we do our chore. It's, it's a routine, but in the, same, in the same aspect, like anything could happen at any moment between, you know, by the, when I'm here, um, where I could kind of give you that little throw-off of your routine, which is still really nice. Um, but you know that you know where you're coming to every day, and you know what kind of tasks you have to get done, um, which is part of the routine. 
I love that every day I can come to work and make a purpose and help somebody through whatever it is. It's something that's very rewarding. When you find when you find a job that you love, you know it. And when you find what you love and you can make it into a career, that's even better. WPRV wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next, Henry Moses and Luke Carroll bring us to a junction point in the day, quite literally, in the rush hour in the evening, at Princeton Junction Station on New Jersey Transit, speaking to people at a point of change in their commute, in their day, and maybe even in their lives. Built in 1864, the Princeton Junction Station originally served the United New Jersey Railroad and Canal Company. As the Washington, D.C. to Boston Eastern Metropolis expanded over the years, so too did Princeton Junction's importance. As of 2017, weekday ridership sat at just under 7,000 riders per day. The station is a junction that lies almost exactly between New York City and Philadelphia, right in the middle of the sprawling mass that makes up New Jersey. Most of all, Princeton Junction is a noisy place, which you will in fact find out in our interviews. We ask you to lean into the ambient noise and sort of imagine yourself there. Princeton Junction is one of the few places where you can see a person, you can meet a person, you can talk to them, and then you can never see them again. What Henry and I wanted to do was to document a tiny fraction of the stories that pass through the station every single day and offer them to our audience. One thing about the station is that curiosity is abundant. When I travel at Princeton Junction, I wonder who these people are, what they do for a living, where they come from and where they're going. And yet I'm intrigued by them only to listen to their stories, not to remember them. The first person we talked to was a man named Leslie, who at first was hesitant to speak with us, but as we poked and prodded, we learned some interesting facts about his life and why he was at the station. So Leslie, what brings you to Princeton Junction today? Uh, my partner is a faculty member at Princeton University, and I was uh, staying with her for the week. Amazing. So. And what do you do in Washington, D.C.? I work in Congress. I'm a staff member on one of the senator's staffs. Where are you from originally, Leslie? Texas. And why are you interested in politics? Um, so I'm actually in the military, I'm, and I'm a defense fellow. I'm on a year-long fellowship with her staff, so um, this is kind of our opportunity to kind of do something outside of our normal job, um, you know, work with the staff and bring back what we learned to the Pentagon and hopefully, you know, help propose legislative, you know, action. So, yeah. And would you say that you're at a particular junction in your life or you see any junctions coming up? Uh, yeah. So after this, um, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going, likely to the Pentagon, um, you know, either working for the Secretary of Defense or, you know, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs doing something related to legislative affairs. So I'm kind of waiting on word on what's going to happen with me next. So, yeah. Fascinating. And any last comments, anything that stuck out during your journey? Um... No, I mean, I, I love Princeton. It's a fabulous area. You know, I'll be basically splitting my time back and forth between D.C. and Princeton. So, yeah, kind of ask for a better place to kind of hang out for the week, I guess. Leslie is at a moment in his life when 
his responsibilities, obligations, even career aspirations appear to be in a clash with his wants and desires. And yet he is facing this obstacle with what appeared to be optimism. How do we assess these junctures where two competing interests are dragging us literally in two different directions, one Princeton, the other Washington, D.C.? And how should we overcome them? The second person we talked to was a bit skeptical of us at first. But after getting to know her in, our, in the course of our conversation, she actually left us with some good advice and some more questions. So Mary Lou, why are you here at Princeton Junction today? To take the train to the airport. And airport to where? Uh, Phoenix. Phoenix. What has you going to Phoenix? Um, just to see friends. Where are, you, um, where are you from originally? You're from Princeton, yeah. born here? Yeah. Um, what do you do for a living? I work as a secretary. And would you say that you're at any important junctions in your life, or you see any junctions coming forward? Hoping for junctions coming forward, so I'll be good. Good. Um, anything that has stood out to you today, this week, um, in your career, anything that you'd like to uh, leave us with as we reflect about junctions in life? Uh, things always change, and you never stop learning. While Mary Lou's journey might seem on the more mundane end, she leaves us asking a pretty important question, which is, should we seek out important junctions in life through adventures and journeys, or should we sit and await the junctions to come to us? Normally, when we think of junctions that come to us, that happen to us, they can take the form of tragedy, of loss, but is that always true? When a junction comes to us, one that we didn't seek out voluntarily, we can also experience catharsis, joy, memory. This is exactly the junction where Tyler finds himself, our next story. So Tyler, what brings you to New Jersey? Uh, visiting my family in Rocky Hill. Okay. and. Would you say that you are at a junction in your life that brings you here, or none at all? Um, is this a yes or no question? Yeah, probably. It's um, very open-ended. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I would... Not, not necessarily an immediate one, but uh -huh. in the midst of a juncture, you could say. Okay, and what does that look like, if I may, if I may ask? Uh, it's a, you know, a close family member who's uh, you know, got severe illness. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it's... A, of the depressing variety. Right, I'm very sorry to hear that. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, how long will you be here for? I'm actually headed back now. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long were you here for? Five days. Five days. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else about your journey that has made it stand out, especially? Uh, in my case, it's mainly just memories. I right. grew up here, moved out when I was uh, 23 or 24, moved out west. Uh, but yeah, all my. I come here at least once a year, but still it tends to, you know, trigger things from the deep childhood recesses of the mind whenever I'm here. Just things like weather and scenery, leaves, changing color, all those, all those little details. Why did you move out west, if I can ask? Um, my dad and I went out there on a, he was out on a business trip uh, to San Jose, California, and I just really liked it. Uh, it was, it was different for me, the kind of the obviously the weather, but just the scenery and the feel were so different. I developed this fascination and uh, eventually just moved out there when I was in my 20s. Tyler's junction, of course, shows us the nuance that these moments in life can have. But more than Leslie and more than Mary Lou, he leaves us with an unanswered question, not just in the philosophy of his junction, but in the outcome, he's leaving this junction, yes, with memories, yes, even with a little bit of joy, but also with tragedy. And it's not, sh it's not certain which one has prevailed. It's not certain that even one was more important or more central to the junction than the other. This brings us to our last interview, which was not recorded by the request of the woman who we asked. 
Now, she told us that she's facing an especially important junction in her life, especially in her career, one that stirs up great emotion. But she told us that she can't tell us the nature of that junction, of her career, of why she was at Princeton Station. Our conversation was brief, and we respectfully bid each other goodbyes. And Henry and I continued walking down the station, looking for another story to tell. We turned back one last time to see where the woman had gone, get one last look, because we wanted to describe her to our audience. When we looked back, there was no woman. When we were gearing up to think about this episode and uh, the idea of junctions and unexpected junctions, the first thing that came to mind was, of course, to go to our beloved Princeton Junction. Little did we know we would find so many stories there that, in fact, illuminate more about the nature of junctions on a grander scale. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Henry Moses and Luke Carroll. WPRB wants you to know about Mural Arts Philadelphia. Mural Arts Philadelphia, the nation's largest public art program, exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next, from our archives, Hope Perry learns more about the process behind the circulation desk at Princeton University's Firestone Library, a day in the life of a book. Journalism. <laughs> this is what return sounds like. Firestone Library here at Princeton University is one of the largest open stack libraries in the world. There are literally miles of shelves where patrons are free to browse. And there's some pretty cool stuff on those shelves. I may or may not have dropped a book published in 1840 one afternoon while trying to find a source for a paper. Don't worry, it was fine. But today, since we're talking about returns, I sat down with Joan Martin at Firestone. My name is Joan Martin, and I'm head of Firestone Circulation Services. If you've been to a library, you're already familiar with circulation. It's where you check books out and return them. Um, I think of it as managing from my point of view, the biggest, um, well, the busiest public service area in Firestone. But what actually happens when you return a book to Firestone? So the book's just dropped into the return bin. So I'm gonna reach in and get books out of the return bin, put them on the counter. Um, and then what we do is we stamp dates out of the back Something I've always found cool about Firestone is that even though they've got a computerized system, they still use the manual date stamps on the little slips in the back of books, as if they're using a manual card catalog. So when books come back, Joan and the circulation staff actually physically stamp solid-colored ink over the most recent date as a way to cross it out and make a physical note that the book's been returned. Um, and we then discharge it in our system. One of the books Joan scans sets the printer off. She explains that that means that it needs to go to another spot instead of just going back to the shelf. A slip like this um, would be, could be something that's going on our hold shelf. Um, so from this point, we would put the slip in the book and the book would then go back to our hold shelf. Okay, if it, and I will show you where that is. We'll walk back there. Joan takes me into that mysterious place that library patrons never get to see, beyond the desk to where the books on hold go. So just so for the listeners, mm -hmm. so they know, so Joan and I are standing in between and there's all of these books and they're on their side and there are these pieces of paper with people's names sticking out. And some of them are green and some of them are white. Um, it looks very cool um, and sort of leafy, like the, with all of the, <laughs> yeah. 
and it's, and it's it's alphabetical, obviously, and we have it spread out so that it's really easy to handle, you know, when we get large numbers of books. It stretches really far. What I'm learning is that for books at the library, the return is just the beginning. And not all the books that get returned to Firestone actually go back to the shelves. Some of them go to a mysterious place called Recap. We check out books from our Recap storage facility, which is out on Route 1, which is this fabulous book. Um, I call it like a book warehouse. Very cold out there. <laughs> Everything's temperature controlled. They use forklifts to get the books. Um, it's, it's a fascinating place. So out there, we have a um, huge number of books. And then we also share it with New York Public, Columbia, and now Harvard. And so when patrons are looking for books in our catalog, you will see things from those institutions and you can request those. Listening to Joan describe Recap to me, rightly or wrongly, I imagined a mythical Costco, but instead of industrial-sized mac and cheese and toilet paper filled with books, I've never been there. I have no idea if that's actually what it's like, and it's probably not. But I just wanted to let you know that that's what it feels like in my head. The words forklift and book aren't really supposed to go together, at least to me. Anyway, back to Joan. And then this is the reserve. Um, the reserve is in the front also and back here. We have some videos over there. And then we have trucks of books that we're processing. Um, these are the way the books come to us from the- um, Recap? From Recap. These are what we call Recap cards. So um, they look like shelves on wheels. They, they are shelves on wheels. They don't look like that. That's what they are. Yeah, yeah. Just beyond the forest of hold slips, there's a labyrinth of shelves on wheels, and some regular shelves too, filled to the brim with books, and it's a Wednesday afternoon. Joan tells me that sometimes there are even more. So we, we get, so there are days, Mondays, it's usually our busiest day, that we, I feel like we're swimming in books. There are so <laughs> many books that arrive from Recap and from the pickup service that, you know, there are just massive numbers. And so the whole shelf goes all the way back to here. Oh, wow. In the back, across from the hold shelves and the recap carts, someone's scanning in books that are on return carts. But the books had already been scanned when they were initially returned, like Joan showed me. So I wondered why they were being scanned again. Um, so if something doesn't have a hold on it, um, it goes on the black truck there. And um, from there, it comes back here and it gets discharged all over again. Because I want to be sure that every single book that goes back to the stacks is not charged to a patron. Okay. That's really important to me that, that we don't dare let anything out of our department that's right. still charged to a patron. So because we, if that happens, they could be blamed for it being lost, right? Mm -hmm. Or something like that? Yeah. Overdue. They would receive overdue notices, that kind of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's what's going on there. When books get returned, it isn't just about where they go, but the experience of the patrons that use the library. But a lot of these tasks seem pretty repetitive to actually do scanning in book after book, putting things on shelves, or pulling them for patrons. I asked Joan what makes working in circulation fun. To me, when we get really, really busy, um, like, like a little while ago, we had seven or eight people standing in the line, and they all came at once. And so when something like that happens, the staff, we all kind of jump up and all go to the front desk and wait on people as quickly as we can. And that feels really, it feels really good because we feel like we're really helping people and we're, we're providing a good service. And we, the staff and I, sometimes after something like that happens, we'll, we'll kind of joke that like, what, what was that? <laughs> Where did all these people come from all at once? Um, so, so we do, we do enjoy that. Um, and it makes us feel, um, it, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel really good. So the next time you go to the library, Maybe you'll remember what happens after you make the return. It's just the beginning for the books. For WPRB, I'm Hope Perry. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations, including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. 
To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Hello, listeners. I'm Adam Sanders, and I'm the host and executive producer here at WPRB News & Culture. I'm interrupting tonight's show to talk a little bit about WPRB's fall membership drive. I know it's a Halloween special, but things will get spooky. Just trust me. In this era of mass media conglomerate control, community media stands as a beacon point for creative, innovative content. WPRB provides that. Arts, music, educational, and news media by and for the Delaware Valley community we call home, independent of corporate or institutional control. We're funded entirely by our sustaining members' donations, and we need your help to continue producing the content you know and love. News and culture is a labor of love, but its continued production relies on support of listeners like you. Making a pledge donation to WPRB supports News and Culture's mission of of producing quality community arts, culture, and public affairs coverage for our New Jersey and Pennsylvania neighbors. Stories that engage with community activism, local artists, regional history, and current local affairs. As part of WPRB, we rely on the generosity of sustaining donors, listeners like you who contribute to keep WPRB alive. You can become a member by donating at pledge.wprb.com. There are some truly sick perks, including a really cool bottle opener and an absolutely terrifying t-shirt. But this Halloween, nothing is scarier than the possibility of corporate hegemony over the media. Fight the algorithms, become a member, and support WPRB at pledge.wprb.com. That's pledge.wprb.com. All right, I'll stop chirping now. Back to the stories. Finally, we return to the archives for an interview between Anna Hiltner and a farmer who believes her work is at an important junction between agriculture and the transcendent world. The word to remember, biodynamics. I took a trip to Orchard Farm Organics to speak with Caroline Finney about life on the farm. Hello. Orchard Farm Organics is an organic farm, about a 10-minute drive from Princeton University. And they are part of this program called CSA, or Community Supported Agriculture. So the CSA model, which was comes out of Rudolf Steiner, it's based on his ideas of social and economic and cultural life, that the, it's called the threefold social order, that the economic life should be based on brotherhood. So the consumer, you, let's say, and the producer, me, we enter into this mutually beneficial relationship, mutually supportive relationship. So I'm not trying to get a take advantage of you, and you're not trying to take advantage of me. So the CSA model is a wonderful model for the farmers to feel supported by their community. By purchasing shares, people in the community support the farm and pick up fresh produce every week during the growing season. In this way, Orchard Farm Organics is a community farm in which the growers and consumers provide mutual support for each other while also providing financial security for the business. Also offer programs, educational programs. There's just so much to learn. You know, we, we're really dependent on, on food and we want it to be the most vital and most um, healthy food possible. And part of this is maintaining sustainable practices. We don't, we're not mechanized, because we're an educational Mm. facility, really. We don't want to be too mechanized. It could be more practical. You have one farmer doing everything, laying out the plastic. No, we're not mechanized. We're wheelbarrow loads. (laughs) They also try to disturb the soil as little as possible. It's what we call no-till practices. 
And all of this is part of an effort to promote sustainability and environmental preservation. We want to protect that environment. And part of how they go about doing this is through something called biodynamic practices. And we are also working with a special kind of organics, which is called uh, biodynamics. It's based off the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. You're the, the man Rudolf Steiner? <laughs> who is an Austrian philosopher and scientist from the early 1900s. All through his adult life, he was sort of recognized as somebody who had this deep insights into human nature, into things even beyond what you can see. In 1924, there's a group of farmers. They're already very successful farmers. They gathered, and they knew a little bit about his philosophy because he has a spiritual philosophy as well. Spiritual philosophy meaning it's not like a religion, but um, the basis of that is that within each human being, there's a unique spiritual individuality. And also that goes from, from incarnation to incarnation. So I see you here, but you're still alive when you're not here in a physical form. So he says the farm should be a self-contained individuality. So all the fertility for the farm should be derived from the farms. And a large part of this process is the use of compost. So that's why we have cows, because the cows give us their wonderful manure. And how the cow has taken up what's on the land and churned it in its stomach and regurgitated and, and so forth and and then give us this manure but then the manure is already partially digested and is also filled with all these wonderful cow forces and um, so we gathered that from our fields and we put it on our compost piles in our compost piles the compost piles are, consist of everything you can also add to it. It's just like if you're making a stew or a bread or something, you want to add spices or, or some herbs. You can add these preparations that, that will harmonize the, the compost. And every year, we enrich our beds with our own compost. So through the use of traditional and biodynamic practices, Caroline's farm generates its own fertility through composting instead of the use of synthetic fertilizers. But these processes also take a lot of time. So I'm wondering, you don't use machines and you do all this work to make the fertilizer with the manure and compost. Mm -hmm. And so all of this takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how do you think about all of the time you put into preparing the fertilizer and to planting the seeds and harvesting that would be a lot faster if you just bought fertilizer or used a machine? Yeah, well, you know, there's something about doing things yourself and um, something about doing meaningful activity. You know, it's really meaningful, this work. Um, it's meaningful. It's a teaching tool, too. If I went and bought it, I wouldn't know exactly what was in it. And I know when I take a seed between my thumb and my first finger that I, I pick that one seed up and I know it's going right in there. It's a very direct connection between myself and the seed. But it's, there's something about the connection of the human being with the farm. And that's another big thing about biodynamics. He says that the farmer should have a direct connection with the farm, be connected with everything. Your eyes, your senses, everything is alive to this this entity, this this your own individual entity. And it doesn't mean it's mine. It just means that my ego presence or the farmers that work with us, people that work with us, they have this this ego consciousness or the awareness of what's going on. And um, when, you, when you don't know everything that's going on, um, surprising things can happen. So biodynamics isn't only about sustainability, but it's also about a farmer's ability to have a connection to their farm and a greater understanding of the earth. And this kind of knowledge is what helps farmers like Caroline work to prevent crop failures. 
That's all part of the process, right? Oh, yeah. Things go wrong sometimes. They do, they do. And um, that's why we have the CSA model, because people understand that we're just working as hard as we possibly can, and you'll have a crop failure. And it's also when you plant your seeds is a really important thing that we consider. This is Stella Natura. It's a, a biodynamic planting calendar, which I use. So there are times that you can plant your seeds where they will be more protected in their development. Okay, so it says working with cosmic rhythms, biodynamic planting calendar. Yeah. So there's different cosmic rhythms, and that depends the time. No, spooky you... stuff. Eh? <laughs> well, okay, this is um, something that I always thought was a little strange, but there have been people who've done research. So they planted, let's say, radishes. Planted radishes on a root day, and whoosh, radishes, beautiful and round. They planted radishes on a flower day, they're just going all over the place. So there have been people who've done this scientific experiments with planting according to where the moon is in the constellations of the zodiac. So that's where we consider not just, oh, just throw your seeds in whenever, but you, you think that there is a connection. So for hundreds and thousands of years, people have been, have considered that when the Sun was in a certain constellation, certain things can happen when it's in a certain, the moon's in a certain constellation, something else too. So when the moon is in a, in a fire constellation, then you should plant seeds that have to do with fruiting. When the moon is in an earth constellation, then you would plant what kind of crops? Roots. Yeah, got it. Okay. When it's in a in a water constellation, plant leaf. And then air is more flowers. And for plants, the saps are very much influenced by the moon, for instance, the, the phases of the moon. Steiner says it was an old peasant philosophy and just a, a proverb, you know. After a rain and before the full moon is when you plant your seeds. That's where the moon forces are most influential, along with the water. I think it's a really great idea. <laughs> I love it. Uh, do you so know a that? lot of your daily routine is decided by this calendar? Yes, um, when I'm planting. So thinking about how different moon phases affect the harvest, I wonder if climate change has had any impact on the farm. Yeah. Has um, climate change affected how mm -hmm. much work you have to do or what you have to do every day? I tell you one thing we've noticed. We're completely organic here. Not a bit of poison anywhere, but we see less birds. I see less insects. But how is it? our life different? Well, the heat heat of the summer is tremendous and the quality of the insect life is it's it has changed tremendously so all of a sudden you're getting insects that you never saw before like the harlequin beetle that beetle has black and orange and white patterns on its back it's so beautiful but it sucks the life out of the kale and the brassica. We didn't have those harlequin beetles, but they come up from the south. And so now we have them more. So we have different, different insect life that appears with uh, climate change. But, but it is hard. You know, it's, it's really hard when, when you have a crop failure or you go out to pick lettuces and you the day before you saw those lettuces were just perfect for the CSA you checked it out and and the night before the deer have jumped over and chewed them down you know and and that's really really hard you know that yeah, but it's you part be... of the it's part of the what you're in that's Caroline's husband Bob who just walked in 
Hi, darling. Come on in. And it's different for every farmer, every place, when every year. But then there are diseases that come that you didn't have. Like, we never had the um, the onion fly. Onion fly has just arrived from the south. So there's hotter temperatures, there's less biodiversity, and the heat is bringing new invasive species from the south that are hurting their plants. Caroline and Bob are out in the field every day, working in the earth, so they notice these things. So from about April to October, you're doing farm work every day? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah all the time. And how do you feel about that repetition of every day? Going? Repetition? This is Rudolf Steiner. It's different every he day. He said he was once doing some carving in this building they were building, and he was a very slight man. He was brought up very, very poor and just almost like a waif he looked, but he was as a man. So he's working so hard and these guys with these big muscles were saying, How come you how come you're you've been at it all day long and you're you're still not tired? He said, There's strength in rhythm. And I often think about that. When you have a rhythmic life like the convents or the you know the monasteries or uh, at labor pray and work you know there this life that's regulated and rhythmic it's very very healing and you know what's happening your body gets into the rhythm if we sleep at the same time we eat at the same time we you know anything we do in a rhythmic way brings strength and um it, it nourishes us, you know. So, yeah, um, it's never, the more the repetition, and that's when you have a change of how things are going to go in the future, that's what's driving me nuts right now because things are going to be different. But, you know, we, we've been doing the same thing, more or less, for 20 years. So this is the time to prune. Now's the time, the trees. Now's the time to, oh, the... Everything has its season. That's why I don't want to ever get out of this, you know? Somebody could put me on a, in an old folks' home, but I'm going to just escape <laughs> out the back door, and I'm going to want to just be with nature, because nature has just is so giving. And so... Um, well, it's interesting all the time. Always interesting. And so... Oh no! Is it boring? Is it no? The repetition is um, nurturing. It's really nurturing. And but it isn't repetition. <laughs> Every day there's something you're going to do, but it's part of a a plan. Caroline says that there is strength in rhythm, and Bob points out that while they have the same routine every year, what they do every day, week, and month is different. They are constantly learning new things and adapting to changes like in the climate. This mix of consistency and variation has made the farm what it is. Well, we started when organic agriculture was just really getting moving. And there's a evolving consciousness of, of uh, how you should be working the land. But still, we have Monsanto monopolizing seed production in many markets. And Monsanto is an American corporation that is a major producer of pesticides and GMO crops. They also dominate many food markets, both nationally and internationally. So how does a farm survive? And we're preserving the land. We're preserving the, the practices. This is a hard thing because you... I go to these biodynamic conferences and I was with, you know, a lot of young people, but then there are a lot of people my age or even older, and there's this one woman, she said, well, this is the year I'm saying goodbye to my farm. You know, it's being turned into condos. You know, the inheritance, the kids don't want a farm, and um, you yeah. know, they're going to get more money by turning it into condos. And, you know, she's weeping. And um, so... I don't know what we're going to do to preserve and support the um, the little farmers 
what we're trying to do is see what's going to happen with the future of this farm. So what we want for sure is that this farm stays as a farm and it doesn't become a developed place. We've become so disconnected from the earth and here we have an opportunity to help people. Caroline and Bob, as well as a lot of farmers in the Princeton area who don't have any successors and face offers from either real estate developers or big agribusiness, are worried about the future of their small farms, as well as the sustainable agriculture movement that they have been a part of for so many years. What is the value of this farm here? It's the food, but it's also the education. It's the, the social life that's built around a community working together and supporting one another. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's stories were reported, recorded, and produced by Elizabeth Shway, Henry Moses, Luke Carroll, Hope Perry, Anna Hiltner, Oliver Wang, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McQueenie, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.